0: I mean, yeah, you can have your guns out on the range. But the most powerful weapon, the only one you need, is the truth. It's noon for Tuesday, june twenty ninth, twenty twenty one. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at T.me slash I'm your moderator or Join the discussion thread at t.me imreasonable I'm You can also occasionally find me on Gab at I'm Your Moderator. And the merch site is www.cancelcouture.com. Today is the 160th day of Barack Obama's third term, as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth, that's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You thought that taking the easy road would get you right where you wanted to go? And it turns out that all you did Was show everyone you know that you're the kind of person who takes the easy road because protecting your own personal status quo is more important than protecting your friends, your family, and your country. But that said, a warm Tuesday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. How's it going? Welcome to the show. I don't know if you got here by accident, but even if you did, I would love to welcome you to stay. Now, the problem with you staying is one you're going to realize really quickly. And it's just going to be something you have to deal with because you're going to receive a little mocking and a little ridicule for all the stupid and evil ideas that are still rattling around in your little child-sized commie brain. Now, it's not personal, but it also is very personal, and you're probably going to take it that way. But the thing is, if you want it to stop, all you have to do is migrate back to America by leaving all those little commie ideas behind. And you know it's for the best. You think about it a whole lot. But you're in the party of false decorum and you think, oh, no. What if I agree with all these no-no ideas? Then I'll be a no-no person and all these terrible communists I'm friends with won't like me anymore. But you see, commie, that too is an added bonus. Because they're not actually your friends. You see, if they would disown you and disavow you and punish you for speaking out against all the slogans, they would also gladly turn you in to the brown shirts when they come a knocking. And if you think I'm wrong, give it some more thought. Think about who these people are. Consider who you've watched them punish before. Be honest about it, because you know you've seen it. And you know that they have some serious viciousness lying deep down in their little black commie hearts. And at that point, you should think, huh, if this person would turn me into the brown shirts, perhaps... They're not my friends. And as soon as you notice that redeemable communist, you'll be like, oh yeah, I got to get back to America absolutely as fast as possible. And I know it seems scary. Your whole life is built around these relationships. But I'll tell you this. As soon as you immigrate back to America, you're going to find that all those friends you think you've lost Are actually happy to welcome you back. You just say, hey, guys, I'm sorry. The culture led me into all of these terrible beliefs, but I've worked my way out and I hope you'll accept that. And I am here to fight alongside you so that we can take back our country and provide a good home for future generations so that we don't become the generation that gave America away. Now, over the weekend, I was talking with a bunch of people about politics, as I often do when I'm not recording this show or buried in Telegram or doing research online. And naturally, we discussed commies and redeemable commies. And people are genuinely confused about how it is that our peers still have not woken up to these simple and obvious truths. And one of the things that always gets me that I really genuinely can't understand is how they're weighing the relative importance of these decisions, right? Everything that goes against the slogans, that goes against the central narrative, that goes against the state media. They call it all a conspiracy theory. And, you know, that's fine. That's normal. That's what they do. But they never have the thought like, hey, what if that person's right? You know, like if I'm wrong about everything, right, I could be there's A chance I could just be wrong about everything. Maybe my research led me in all the wrong directions. Maybe I really am so extraordinarily biased that I cannot any longer separate fact from fiction. I don't think that's the case. But let's say I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, all I would have to do is be like, yeah, I got it wrong. And it's just me that's affected, right? My reputation goes in the trash. Maybe it's harder for me to find work. Harder for me to make friends. That's my own responsibility. If they're wrong, they are actively involved in leading our country to ruin on all sorts of different levels. Okay? It's bad enough to be wrong about the origin of coronavirus. That put us behind the game now for what? 17 months? We certainly knew of the existence of coronavirus in January of 2019. Some people knew about it in December of 2019. That's a long time from now to not understand where the virus came from. As I've said before, if we had known all along that the virus came from the lab, then we would know more about the virus, of course, because it was being researched. We wouldn't have had to pretend that it came from a bat or a pangolin and that it was a brand new virus. And we just didn't know. We knew. At least the people involved in the gain of function research that produced the virus, they sure knew. Anthony Fauci knew. Anthony Fauci knew everything that he needed to know about the virus. And he nonetheless said the complete opposite. We should have known. From the beginning, our response would have been different, that different response would have been more effective and we would have treated it as a problem to solve rather than a horror we must hide from. That's a big deal. We also could have just immediately understood if we didn't have censorship, if we didn't have communists trying to shut us down that masks don't work and lockdowns don't work. The choice to lock down was the single worst decision in the history of humanity. And every single day we spent locked down in all these communist states and cities, places that still have these crazy mitigation measures in place, Every single day that went on, that evil was compounded. The choice to lock down resulted in the single greatest moral, political, and scientific failure in human history. It caused the greatest loss of joy and prosperity the world has ever seen. Okay? People didn't get cancer screenings. Alcohol and drug abuse skyrocketed. Domestic violence skyrocketed. Crime has skyrocketed. 200 plus million people in the world were driven into extreme poverty, something that will take a generation to prepare, if not longer. And it was all for absolutely nothing. And this is what I mean by relative importance. If I'm wrong, then I'm just a guy who's wrong. If they're wrong, look what happened. They don't even care that they're wrong. They don't even care to find out if they're wrong. And they did this while saying that the 2020 election was the most important election in the nation's history, the most important election in the nation's history, and they didn't bother finding out if they were wrong. While people in their lives were telling them sincerely and in an informed way, hey, you're wrong. That should show you how little they care. That should show you how comfortable they are. The only functional, proper definition of privilege is that one. No matter how lazy, ignorant, and irresponsible you are about the most important decisions in your life, you believe that nothing bad can happen. Nothing bad enough to change your position in society. They didn't even bother to consider the question. And worse than that, they rejected all of the people that were trying to tell them the truth while promoting the people who were happy to be complicit in their lie. And in conversations with these people, however much you might still have them, An important and effective question is, hey, what if I'm right? Like, what if I'm right about election fraud? Wouldn't that mean that our country right now is in grave danger? Don't you think it would make sense for you to try to find out if perhaps I am right and you're wrong? Might that be worth your time, communist? And a whole lot of commies will say, hey, you know, you you can follow that path if you like. I'm just trying to look out for myself and my own family. Well, hey, commie, here's the thing. If society falls apart because you didn't bother paying attention to society, then you're not doing something good for yourself and you're not doing something good for your family. So stop it. Okay, commie. Now, I was watching Marjorie Taylor Greene on War Room today, and I am honestly super impressed by her. You know, she breaks on to the public stage and the media tries to tear her down immediately, calling her QAnon and stupid and all the things that they say. And she withstood it. She went harder and harder and harder at them. And now she is single-handedly changing and correcting the way the Congress works. She really is a force of nature, and it is awesome to watch her, all right? She has forced Congress to vote on all of the measures they're passing. She's forcing the votes to begin with, and she's making people put themselves on the record so they can be held accountable. Now, I'm going to play a little audio today from War Room, and it's a bit of a long clip, but I want you to hear this whole thing because she's talking about something called unblock legislation that most of us had never heard of till this week. (laughs)
1: And then the Democrats decided, because I was being so effective and we were actually stopping things from being passed, now they put them in one big group called On Block. And now, here's the issue, I'm going to tell you another story. On Block is like an omnibus of bills, and we're voting one vote for all the bills together. And here's what's bad. Republicans are voting for the On Block because they might have one bill in there that belongs to them, and it's a good bill, and they're trying to get their bill passed But by voting yes to the on-block, they're passing the Democrats' garbage. And so this is going on every single week in Congress. And I've been telling my colleagues, and here's what I want you to also tell my Republican colleagues. I want you to call them, and I want you to tell them to stop voting yes for any on-block of bills. We do not vote for a group of bills. We should be voting one bill at a time individually. And then we should be all voting in person and then we should all vote. No one should miss a vote. I have another story about that in a minute.
0: All right. So you got that. Do you understand what on block legislation is? They package a series of bills together and then vote on them as the package. So this is a, a means of negotiation, probably often on Nancy Pelosi's part, where she's trying to guarantee votes from Congress members who might not be interested in voting for the thing she really wants. You know, maybe she has one thing she wants to pass, and she needs nine votes to pass it, so she will take nine Congress members' pet projects, pack them all up together into the on-block package, thus securing their votes. So now they just vote on the entire package of 10 things. And each of those members want to shepherd their own little pet project through so badly that they will give their vote to the thing Pelosi really wants as long as they can get their thing. And. And. On some level, this is kind of always how we've assumed Congress works. You know, we always declare how great compromise is. And compromise can be fine if you have two reasonable people working in good faith who happen to disagree. Maybe they can find a middle point. All right. But compromising to get some little pet project of yours passed By agreeing to pass something you know is terrible, that's not a compromise. That's someone else suckering you into doing what you should not be doing. And any member of Congress who is seeking power wants to get their legislation passed so that they look like they have a record to stand on. They can go back to their constituents and say, look, I did this. Without ever mentioning that they actually passed the other thing. And they'll say, yeah, I mean, I did vote for that, but it was part of an on block legislation. And the truth is, I was really just trying to do this one thing. And they relieve themselves of all accountability. It should become clear pretty quickly that this style of negotiation and this style of legislation is just a cover. For corruption. It's a way to pass legislation that wouldn't otherwise pass. By recruiting members of Congress. And all they're getting is their little piece of legislation. How many times does this happen? And what has been the upside for these members of Congress who will agree to vote for on block legislation to pass their little pet project? What's the positive versus the negative here? And, you know, the original argument for all of this is certainly expediency. It's just simply more efficient to package all these things together and get stuff passed. But to accept that argument, you would have to accept the idea that expediency in legislation is a good thing. And that's not a good thing. It doesn't matter how much drama the communists drum up about these societal issues. And of course, that's always what it is. Try to recall the last time Democrats convinced anyone to support any of their causes without appealing to racism, sexism, classism or some phobia, some sort of victimization or some sort of fear tactic. If we don't do this, the bad thing's going to happen. That's it. They don't actually try to take their legislation to the country and say why it's a good thing and why it should be passed. We're just always supposed to agree that if we don't do the thing they want, it's racist. And then they'll call us racist if we don't agree to do it. And so rather than being called racist, maybe we should just get something out of it for ourselves and that'll make it okay. Then we can explain it. Then we can say, I had this very, very important thing that I had to pass. And so rather than being attacked and called racist, I chose the easy way. And then we get the terrible, terrible legislation through. And this is essentially the exact same mindset that we're hearing from the very scientific community. They have their projects, their projects need funding, therefore they have to go through Anthony Fauci, therefore to maintain their funding, they have to shut up about anything that would upset Anthony Fauci. This is how the science community has operated now for decades. This is why Anthony Fauci is so powerful. And all of these scientists make their little moral argument. They rationalize to themselves to explain why their silence isn't a bad thing because their project, their personal project is so important that it might save the world. And besides, none of the other scientists are speaking up. That is moral corruption. That is an abandonment of moral principle in favor of expediency and selfishness. And it's often caused by a prideful ego that tells you that your project is is so important that it must continue. Consider how many scientists must have gone along with the idea that gain-of-function research is worthwhile, or that working alongside the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army, even as they have two million Muslim Uyghurs in concentration camps, is necessary for the advancement of science. That's scientism. That's a moral corruption. So I'm thinking about all this this morning, and I don't talk about this often, but when I was in college, I was a double major in business management and philosophy. And the business management, I was kind of, you know, just doing for job prospects in the future. You know, you want to have a functional degree on some level. And it's good to understand business regardless, even if you are not going to enter the job market and instead you want to, you know, become an entrepreneur or whatever. So I was happy to double major because I really love the philosophy. And throughout my philosophy education, I, of course, took symbolic logic as every philosophy student does, or at least used to. And I ended up doing my thesis in identity across possible worlds, which relied on a pretty good understanding of symbolic logic. And part of taking logic is to learn about and understand logical fallacies. And one logical fallacy that is always discussed is the slippery slope fallacy. And what we have here is a slippery slope between doing the people's business and then slowly sacrificing that integrity in favor of expedience to the point where everything eventually becomes about expedience. And that's the point we've reached. Now, if you were to say at the beginning, hey, we should not be passing any legislation on block, someone would say, hey, we have a lot of work to get done, and it's not going to get done if we slow ourselves down. Well, that's your problem, person who wants to pass all this legislation. Our society is set up and our government is set up so that we don't go around passing legislation willy-nilly. That's why there are checks and balances. But the further we move away from doing things the right way, even if we have to sacrifice expediency, even if the process is slower than people would like, the closer we move to a government that dominates its people, the closer we move to totalitarianism and authoritarianism and communism. And of course, that's why Nancy Pelosi loves all of this so much. It's fantastic that Marjorie Taylor Greene is there standing in the way of this stuff, exposing all this stuff so that the people can actually demand better of their representatives. And I'm thinking about the slippery slope fallacy and thinking, hey, you know, the slippery slope argument is not always a fallacy, but somehow we are convinced to pretend that it is. Slippery slopes really do exist, and we can see the results. And too much of the time, slippery slope arguments are assumed to be fallacious when they're actually not. And, you know, so I was looking to see if I could find when people started talking about this idea because. It is now used as a rhetorical device to shut people down, to make it sound like their concerns about where something might head are unfounded. And so, you know, I'm searching for it online. I wanted, I felt like reading a little bit about slippery slope fallacies. And one of the first links I came to is from Texas State's Department of Philosophy, and they describe the slippery slope argument this way. In a slippery slope argument, a course of action is rejected because with little or no evidence, one insists that it will lead to a chain reaction resulting in an undesirable end or ends. The slippery slope involves an acceptance of a succession of events without direct evidence that this course of events will happen. And When I'm reading the definition just on its own, you see that word evidence and we can look back and think back about the last year and a half and see what qualifies as evidence now to the people we deal with in our culture. There was always ample evidence that the coronavirus originated at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. There was zero evidence ever that it came from a bat or a pangolin. And the only evidence provided was that prior viruses had emerged naturally, namely the first SARS virus. That's what they relied on. That was the entirety of their argument. And of course, now they've advanced the argument and said it actually has the virus has an evolutionary process that indicates a natural origin. But of course, we know from the Daily Mail article I discussed a couple of weeks ago that in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they were creating new versions of the virus to make it look like the virus had evolved. And so while that's a circumstantial case and can't nail down the argument 100 percent, there is no reason for us to give any weight to the evolutionary process argument that would indicate the coronavirus emerged from nature. So all the evidence is on one side, but the fact that it is not 100% open and shut, direct, actual, 100% proof, they pretend it's not evidence, right? They don't have that standard At all with the masks, there is zero proof that masks work anywhere in the world. Yet for us to say they don't work, we're supposed to supply overwhelming evidence. And even though we have. It's not good enough. Likewise, with election fraud, they are still claiming that there is no evidence And even if there is some evidence, it's not enough evidence to think that the election would have been overturned. So that's just fine. We should leave it as is. We should never explore it. And that totally discounts the fact that there are actually representatives all around the country and ballot measures all around the country that could have been overturned even on the evidence we have that they deem not enough to overturn the presidential election. So they redefine evidence however they like in any given situation, which means that they can always abuse the slippery slope argument. And the funny thing is, so I'm on the Texas State University website, and they give some examples of the slippery slope argument. Here's one. We can't permit the sale of marijuana by doctor's prescription because that will lead people to believe it's an acceptable drug. This will open the floodgates to the complete legalization of the drug for use by every pothead in the country. Now, I personally have absolutely no problem with marijuana being legalized. But. We can see that between whenever this little. Paper was written. And now that slippery slope turned out to be very, very real. That is exactly the argument people make, and it is exactly what's happening. We are absolutely 100% on a road toward total legalization of marijuana for recreational use because it was opened up for medical use that was the progression. That's a real aspect of history. Those are facts we can check. So the example that they used as a slippery slope fallacy turned out to actually be a real slippery slope. Their next example, today late for 10 minutes, tomorrow late for an hour, and then someday you will simply cease to show up. We can see that Principle at work in real life as well. Here's another example they give. If Texas adopts a personal income tax, I'm moving away. An income tax at the state level is just a first step to communism. Well, how about California? They have, I think, unless I'm mistaken, the highest personal income tax for any state in the nation. And California is also pretty communist. There actually is a direct relationship there. Another one. If we legalize pot, then that will lead to every drug in the world becoming legal. Doesn't that happen? Isn't that happening? And here's their final one. First we loosen up the laws against abortion. Next Mark my words, we'll take seriously the option of infanticide in certain severe cases, and this will lead us to look with favor on euthanasia for those we deem social deviants. I don't even need to comment about that one. So we can see that it is absolutely not always a fallacy to make a slippery slope argument, and the slippery slope argument between Using on block at all and that style of legislation eventually leading to total corruption and a total lack of accountability is extremely valid. And this at its heart is what conservatism is. It's we don't want to take that step Because we know what the next step after that is, and we know what the step after that is. And conservatives will make this argument correctly based on what they know of human nature, what we all know of human nature. This is what humans will do. And even good people have moments of weakness where they can be exploited. That's why you don't get on the path to begin with. So I I think you get what I'm saying. I don't want to hammer this for too much longer, but I do want to give a lot of credit to Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I do want to make sure that we all have this on block legislation on our radar. If you're the sort of person that gets active, which I hope you are. Make sure. Make sure that the people around you know about this call your congressman and say, if you pass any on block legislation, you will be held accountable for every single thing that you passed in that package. And I don't care what priority you have for voting that way. You are going to be held accountable for every bit of that on block legislation. That's the only way this stuff works, all right? If they can't get their legislation passed properly, then perhaps the country doesn't want or need that legislation. And you might say, well, the country does need that legislation and we're in the minority. I get it. What you have to do then is press the legislators to get out there and convince people or you get out there and convince people, or if those two things don't work, then you expose every single person who isn't getting it done. We have to do this all the right way. The system was set up well enough. The problem here is not in the constitution. The problem here is not in the form of government. The problem here is in the weakness of the people who are doing the legislation. Now, changing subjects to election fraud, election audits. This is Georgia State Senator Brandon Beach on with John Fredericks yesterday.
2: Now, and then in that special session, um, the if, if you wanted to do an, an analysis of the state, that would go through the what committee, the elections integrity committee? Well, uh, government oversight. Government oversight. So, and who's the chairman for that, Max? Uh, Ma- Marty Harvin. Marty Harvin. And so
3: Marty, and they do have subpoena power, so they could call.
2: So they uh, have subpoena power.
3: The, the government. Voted on by the full, right. full body. And so we could then ask for other evidence. But I think it's going to be so overwhelming in, in Fulton that shows it's going to be you know anywhere from 17 to 34,000 ballots. It's going to tell the story. But we can then look at Coffee County, Ware County, DeKalb, Gwinnett. We could look at all of them. And really make our case. Then, what I think we can do—and I'm not sure, and I'm not an attorney—but I think we can ask for our 16 electoral college votes back and park them here, and just say we don't want those part of the the vote.
2: So you have the so, basic—you have the authority to basically, uh, in a sense, decertify our your our 16 electoral votes. Just don't give them to the Trump. Just
3: park, park them. them here. Bring them back and park them in Georgia. And then if Arizona did that, and if. Um, a couple other states did that, and it got below 270. Then the 12th Amendment would kick in, and Congress would have to
2: Congress would have to act, act right because he, he wouldn't be at 270, right. Because enough uh, votes were uh, withdrawn. Now, what about the U.S. U.S. Senate race? Uh, if you find out that Purdue won in the first ballot, can, do you have the power to decertify that? Right. That
3: I don't know. Uh, I know that in North Carolina that happened, but the person was never sworn in, right? So they have made a change, and that the, was the
2: scandal, correct. right? About the
3: so the I don't, harvesting there. I don't know what happens when someone's already sworn in and it's been certified and signed off on. Uh but we will look at every uh, legal avenue we have uh because I'm quite sure that uh, there was more than five thousand ballots
2: that were counterfeit in that race. Well that was the difference, right? right. Between 5, between produce causing a runoff. Yeah. Right. Otherwise Purdue on the first, otherwise right. Purdue one's on the first ballot. Yes. And that change of bower of ballots, uh, the How? power of ballots in, in the country. Right.
0: The balance of power was changed with that election. Now, what Beach is talking about is the Garland Favorito case. And as I've talked about just last week, Judge Amaro is allowing the audit of the one hundred and forty seven thousand ballot images to go forward. And they already know. That they are going to find. Enough. Illegal votes that should not have been counted, to overturn the result of the election. Okay, they already know that. And we already know that in plenty of states at this point. There is absolute irrefutable evidence of that in plenty of states. But the problem has always been the formal process, the court decisions. How is this going to go our direction? You see, the thing here is it's already gone our direction. The only thing they have to do is get the depositions, get the actual work done, tell us what the actual result is. Brandon Beach and the Georgia Senate are ready to move forward as soon as that happens. They're going to decertify the Biden election and they're going to decertify the Senate election because John Ossoff is serving illegitimately and he's not even close to the only one, obviously. But this is something that's really happening. okay? that's a state senator saying what he intends to do. And he's not out there on his own doing this. He's got the state Senate on his side and the courts are going to supply them the evidence they need to move forward with that. It is only a matter of time. So for anyone out there who's still thinking that this isn't happening and it can't happen, well, There's a guy who can do the thing you're saying isn't happening, and he's saying that it is happening and saying that it will happen. So maybe start understanding that that's where the process is. It doesn't matter how many MSNBC hosts and how many George Soros commie secretaries of state say that there's nothing that can be done. It's happening. How are they going to stop it? They're going to analyze the ballots. They're going to find ballots are there illegally. And then they'll move to the next step. And the recourse from the Democrat Communist Party will be to try to sue them so that someone who was sworn in illegitimately can stay in office. How do you think the people are going to react to that? Again, only 29 percent of the country at this point is opposed to forensic audits of the election. Do you really think they're going to get away with this? There is no way. The moment at which one of these states says, yes, the result as reported is wrong, And it is wrong due to widespread systematic election fraud. What do you think will happen? People are not just going to be okay with that. Even a large portion of the Biden voters who don't want to talk about election fraud, don't want to think about election fraud, will not be able to argue with other people or probably even themselves. that nothing should be done about that because they don't want to look like cheaters. All right. At least not more than they already do. Again, we're talking about people who care primarily about self image. They're in the party of false decorum. This is what it's about being a cheater and being a person who tolerates and promotes cheating does not look good even in the party of false decorum. You can only talk about that in back rooms and dark corners where you can recruit people to your side because they're getting something out of the cheating too. Otherwise, there is a moral and social cost to cheating that will be exacted by your community unless they are also cheaters. So I think we all... Probably got our fill of talking about white fragility author Robin DiAngelo, who is a white woman who makes a lot of money to go around telling white people that they're racist because they're white. But. She did an appearance on MSNBC, and it is so crazy that I want to play it for you. And then make fun of it relentlessly.
2: Attaining that, but also very, very deep in protecting the status quo. Uh, and so, of mm-hmm. course, you're going to have people who want to reject uh, the anti-racist movement. Let me be clear that, uh, as I argue in white fragility, I think white people overall are the hothouse flowers. <laughs> I think we tend to be the most irrational and the most angry uh, that the book white fragility nice racism is written by a white person to white people i'm not talking about black people or trying to explain black people i'm trying to talk about uh ourselves in relationship to black people and for far too long we have um excused ourselves from that relationship Um, Mm -hmm. uh, as if we are not a part of this, as if racism happens to black people in some kind of a vacuum. Uh,
0: Okay. So white people are hothouse flowers. If you don't know what a hothouse flower is, it's basically a flower that is not strong or sturdy enough to, survive in a natural environment. So it has to be grown in a greenhouse. That's what she's saying. White people are white people can't exist in a natural environment. So they make their environment safer by oppressing black people. And she's saying that white people are primarily I guess, psychologically unhinged, psychologically unfit. And we're the most irrational and angry. Got that as a condition of white skin color. We are irrational and angry. Now, she's in a movement of communist morons that think the stereotype of the angry black man or the angry black woman is insanely racist. And I'd be like, yeah, okay, that is racist. It would be very, very racist to think that every time a black person was upset, it was a result of their blackness. That would be extraordinarily racist. But it's not racist, apparently, to say it about white people especially if you're a white person, because then what you're doing is just criticizing your entire race, but not yourself, unless, of course, you believe that it was a condition of your philosophy about the world to claim yourself as racist as a step in the process of solving racism. Okay, to be anti-racist is to admit that you are racist and then permanently divide everyone by race and make sure you are doing better things for black people than white people based on skin color. And in the podcast chat on Telegram today, one of the uh, one of the regular people in there asked, hey, would. Robin D'Angelo consider herself racist. And I was like, yeah, I think that she would say she's racist because all white people are. And if she excused herself from that, she would, of course, be a liar. Right. It would be obvious that she was a hypocrite and a fraud. So the way she gets out of that is by saying that she is both racist and anti-racist. And so if you are something and its opposite, then you either have to admit that neither of those are anything or that being both of them cancels them both out. And so if she is anti-racist and racist, then she is neither. And she's somewhere just in the middle, which is nothing because it's all canceled out. And voila, her job is over. She's right back in the position of nothing. She's racist, but she's also anti-racist. And by declaring herself both of those things, that's all she has to do. And now she gets to live in polite communist society without lifting another finger. And in fact, she gets to get paid $10,000 an hour to explain this brilliant theory to other people. So one thing that you missed, only hearing the audio, not seeing the video, is the fact that her eyes are like crazy shifty, like crazy shifty. She cannot focus on anything. She's not looking at the camera. She's not looking at notes on the screen. She's constantly looking away, up off to the left, trying to figure out exactly where to pull her woke. Bullshit from apparently. But let's go back to this hothouse flower thing for a second. And I think this might explain the shiftiness in her eyes. So if she's going to believe that all white people are this way, which is a claim that she is certainly making without evidence, any science or data, any study that has been done that she could use to support that case is is certainly the result of a communist in academia. Because there's no actual real-world proof of something like that. And even if somehow they were to study this, they would end up taking these tiny marginal differences and then explaining that, yes, white people really are that way. And that, my friends, is scientific racism which is one of the most heinous philosophies the world has ever had to deal with. And we used to all agree on that not that long ago. But let's assume and agree and fully understand that there's absolutely no way that Robin DiAngelo can be accurately describing white people as hothouse flowers. That is only racism. That is only something she is saying to get credit. That is something that she likely enjoys, as does her audience, because they believe that reveling in their white guilt somehow gets them off the hook. That is what this movement is about. They feel like heroes without doing anything but insulting other people right? Because none of the people saying this stuff actually think they are racist. She will say she is because she has to say it because her career is based on saying it. But she doesn't actually believe she's racist. What she's doing is calling other white people racist. And she's ascribing these qualities to other white people. Other white people are irrational and angry. And since she's not getting this from the science, where is she getting it from? She might say that she's getting it from her experience. And if she's getting it from anywhere, it's certainly that. And who does Robin D'Angelo have the most experience with? What sort of irrational, angry white person is Robin D'Angelo exposed to the most? Well, first and foremost... It's Robin D'Angelo. So it is very, very likely that Robin D'Angelo is primarily describing herself, but it's not just herself. It's the people she's surrounded herself with. And the people she's surrounded herself with are most likely really sad, feminist, white women who enjoy finding societally acceptable ways to bully other people. She is probably primarily surrounded by irrational, angry white women and has been for a long time. And that's actually a really good way to become like she is and think the things she thinks. The other thing about irrational, angry white women who enter academia to study fields this useless and then put them to use in this way is that they're all usually very, very spoiled because their father did all the stuff or their grandfather did all the stuff. You know who didn't do all the stuff? To put Robin D'Angelo in the position she's in? Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo has made a career of being an irrational, angry white woman who is a shifty eyed liar and surrounds herself with other irrational, angry, white, shifty eyed liars who go into academia to complain about everyone else on the basis of scientific racism. That right there is Robin DiAngelo. And that right there is Robin DiAngelo's absurd and racist theory of white fragility. And by the way, since it's been mentioned a lot lately, but people forgot about it since we haven't had to talk about Ibram X. Kendi's anti-racism book for the last year. Ibram X. Kendi's real name is Henry Rogers. He changed his name to get more respect from woke's period. Now, one last thing before I go. And again, this is in the realm of speculation. Okay. I want to be very clear about that. Last night, Rachel Maddow in one of her, now ubiquitous meltdowns was talking about Patrick Burns documentary, the deep rig that he just released over the weekend. And it has been received in a strange way, including by plenty of people on our side who have doubts about Patrick Burns intentions and are disappointed with the fact that a guy named, uh, I think his name is uh, Austin Steinbart appears in it. I haven't paid any attention to that dude and don't see any reason to begin paying attention to his story. But she attacked him in a very specific way and it perked up my ears. And you see, the thing is, Rachel Maddow described Patrick Byrne as the former CEO of Overstock.com, who was forced to leave Overstock after it it had been found out that he had an affair with a Russian spy named Maria Butina. Now, it's unclear whether or not Maria Butina is a Russian spy, and I haven't seen reliable proof that she is. I could be totally wrong about that. Maybe she is, but it doesn't seem conclusive to me that she is. I'm primarily wondering why Rachel Maddow went directly to that method of attack. And it brought to mind the fact that a few months ago, Patrick Byrne was promoting a podcast that was coming out about Maria Butina. And he thought there was going to be a significant revelation at some point in that podcast that would speak to what's happening in terms of election fraud and global communism and everything else. The entire story. There was supposed to be some key element in that podcast. And to try to describe Patrick Byrne as having been compromised by a Russian agent is an interesting move because Patrick Byrne, if you take him at his word, was once offered a payoff to silence himself about information he had on Hillary Clinton and others. And if you look back at the stories about Byrne stepping down from overstock, it did happen in the wake of the public realizing that he had this relationship with Maria Butina. But this could have also been a complete setup to discredit Byrne by making the Russian spy claims because the information he had was real. And Rachel Maddow dredging this up at this point is really interesting because Butina has not been proven to be a spy. And if she's not a spy, then that was a political hatchet job. And if it was a political hatchet job to discredit Patrick Byrne and destroy his company, and by the way, When that came out, his company's stock dropped massively, which is what led to him stepping down. This could, again, be cover for the same stuff. So I'm keeping an eye on that. And uh, maybe you will, too. If you see something, tell me about it on Telegram. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Please follow the podcast on Instagram and Parler at I'm Your Moderator. Soon I'll be up on Rumble with a video aspect. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the show, I have a substack, i'm your where you can donate, or you can donate at anchor.fm by searching Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. I hope to see you soon back out on the range. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast.